This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Johnny Gould's Jewish state. We have a uh, potential point of tension with the Biden administration uh, at present because it would like to uh, open a Palestinian consulate in Jerusalem. The problem is that the uh, previous understandings we have with the United States established Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And you can't put the consulate of another country into the capital of your uh, of the state of Israel. Ambassador Dorigold spent his life as a diplomat and trusted senior advisor in the pursuit of peace and security for Israel with its Arab neighbors. Born in Hartford, Connecticut, he comes from a traditional conservative Orthodox Jewish background and lives in Jerusalem with his wife and family. Dore Gold was Israel's ambassador to the United Nations in the late 90s. He advised on the Madrid Peace Conference in 1991 before leading Likud's pursuit to establish peace with the Hashemite Kingdom in Jordan. This was a direct response to the ruling Labour Party's dialogue with the PLO. I was reaching out to uh, the uh, Jordanian leadership to create bonds of mutual understanding with them at a time when the uh, ruling government in Jerusalem, the labor government, was completely involved with the PLO and the Oslo Accords. You don't have to be a genius in Middle East politics to understand that that left a very bad taste in the mouths of many in in the Jordanian capital. So uh, we then began um, expanding contacts with Jordan and set the stage for Jordanian-Israeli peace treaty, which followed. Ambassador Gold was also a key figure in the closure of the PLO's office in East Jerusalem, a concession insisted upon as Israel opened talks with Yasser Arafat as part of the Oslo Accords. And since the turn of the millennium, Ambassador Gold's been president of the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs with his native English and deep experience of U.S.-Israel policy. A supporter of the Abraham Accords, Dore Gold doesn't believe the change of administration in Washington will undermine the extraordinary achievements of President Donald Trump's diplomats across the region, even if the foreign policy priorities of the Biden administration have switched from the Middle East. I have been positively surprised at the durability of the Abraham Accords, that they didn't just dissipate uh, with the departure of the American President, Mr. Trump, and the Israeli Prime Minister, Mr. Netanyahu. The uh, Arab leaders themselves had their own reasons 
for preserving these relationships. He also believes Oman needs a little help in the right direction and they'll join. His articles and books cover a wide variety of Israel diplomacy on Jerusalem. He's dedicated to the golden city replacing Tel Aviv as the ultimate diplomatic hub, the UN and its implications for Israel, nuclear Iran and the US relationship with Israel, and even the possibility that Saudi will complete its change from sworn enemy to partner in peace and normalization. Saudi Arabia in 2021 is not the Saudi Arabia of uh, 2003 when I wrote my book on the kingdom. Uh, back then, Saudi Arabia was funding roughly 70% of the Hamas budget and um, Saudi Arabia was a significant player in Middle Eastern terror. What has happened since is that uh, Hamas is now illegal in Saudi Arabia. Uh, recently, the Saudis um, captured over a hundred Hamas operatives. We've enjoyed some memorable conversations in recent episodes. Scroll back one for the striking opinions of journalist and social commentator Melanie Phillips and the former TV foreign correspondent turned best-selling author whose Power of Geography book talks a language of compromise and peace. My old colleague and friend Tim Marshall. The Power of the English Language is a theme of my podcast series and Ambassador Gold's native command of American English is matched by his economy and measure. In the course of his experience, he had the privilege of working with Israel's greatest English-speaking political orator, Abba Eban. I'll never miss an opportunity to include archive audio of his stirring prose, and that is also coming up in this episode. So here now is Ambassador Dore Gold. Johnny Gould's Jewish State, bringing Israel and the diaspora together. Ambassador Dore Gould, welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Good to be on your show. Tell us about your hopes and ambitions for the Abraham Accords, even though we have a new president in the White House. Well, for example, it became kind of conventional wisdom that uh, while we may see an effort that the um, Biden administration revived the Israeli-Palestinian track as the critical factor that had to be addressed in the Middle East. And that might weaken the um, Abraham Accords and the normalization agreements that were made with um, Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates, Sudan and Morocco. But I don't think we're going to see an effort to undercut those normalization agreements that were really the heart of the Abraham Accords. Nevertheless, the momentum, the excitement of all those signatures has ceased. There was talk, of course, that Saudi Arabia might join them, that even countries like Kuwait might be ready to make that step forward. But that's not going to happen now, despite the best efforts of your co-signatories in the Arab Gulf, the UAE, Bahrain, and further afield, Sudan and Morocco? Well, there are countries that are, um, let's put it this way, eligible to join in this uh, initiative. Take, for example, the Sultanate of Oman. You know, Oman has always, I would say at least since 1979, flirted with Israel. 
in the last number of years, um, we had actually a, a, an Israeli office in Oman. So, you know, and Oman is a significant country. Just to open up a map and look at the size of Oman on the Arabian Peninsula. So that's one more country that could very well uh, join this initiative. Uh, whether Oman joins or whether anybody else joins will depend uh, to some extent on the um, uh, initiative of the United States. If the U.S. lets the ball drop, the chances of this moving forward are not very great, or at least then the special relations that we've developed with many Arab states will tend to go into the background. They'll be, um, they'll be preserved, but they're not going to be out, in front, out front. I think it's too early to say which direction it's going to go in. I, I do want to say one thing, however. I have been positively surprised at the durability of the Abraham Accords, that they didn't just dissipate uh, with the departure of the American president, Mr. Trump, and the Israeli prime minister, uh, Mr. Netanyahu. The uh, Arab leaders themselves had their own reasons for preserving these relationships. That is indeed a very positive comment to make. And indeed, it would be a wonderful achievement to maintain the process of the Abraham Accords under a new president and indeed a new Israeli prime minister should Oman sign, because they were in the White House for the big announcement back in yes. that famous January winter's day in Washington. And I want to remind you that Prime Minister Netanyahu actually uh, flew to Oman and visited the Sultanate. So there have been indications of a special relationship between Oman and Israel in the past. Now, sir, you were the Israeli ambassador permanent representative of Israel to the UN for two years until 1999. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, Mr. Netanyahu, you were alongside him as an advisor throughout all the uh, foreign affairs issues. Um, indeed, very recently up to October 2016, serving as director general of the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I think we can go back to your studies in Arabic and international law and your doctoral dissertation about Saudi Arabia that makes you such a valuable asset to the state of Israel today? Well, you know, I had a reputation. People read my material. They knew about it. And um, they were interested in sitting long hours in, in discussions with me. I think I helped uh, create a bond between Israel and a number of Arab states. The first one where I was involved in what you might call a breakthrough was with the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. Going back to 1994, uh, I was reaching out to uh, the um, Jordanian leadership and to create bonds of uh, mutual understanding with them at a time when the uh, ruling government in Jerusalem, the labor government, was completely involved with the PLO and the Oslo Accords. Uh, you don't have to be a genius in Middle East politics to understand that that left a very bad 
taste in the mouths of many in, in, the, in the Jordanian capital. So uh, we then began um, expanding contacts with Jordan and set the stage for Jordanian-Israeli peace treaty, which followed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Indeed, that was a very typical example of the schism, the fight for peace, underscoring the history of the constant tensions between two opposing views of how we can achieve peace for Israel. And that moment, as you say, between 1994 and 1995 in London, Amman and Aqaba, you worked with the Palestinian Authority, Egypt, Jordan and others in the Arab world to achieve a breakthrough with the Hashemite Kingdom. Just pegging forward to 2003, when you uh, achieved a, a bestseller in the New York Times list, Hatred's Kingdom, How Saudi Arabia Supports the New Global Terrorism. In that book, you argued that Saudi actively funds terror by supporting enemies of the US. And of course, 9-11 and the Pentagon building disaster were two uh, you know, very, very high profile, if not highest profile acts. So two decades on, sir, how close is Saudi to signing the Abraham Accords and changing tack? Or will they continue to be hostile with Israel, even if they become co-signatories of the Abraham Accords, such as the multi-level complexity of these relationships? Well, I think the most important thing to say about Saudi Arabia today is Saudi Arabia in 2021 is not the Saudi Arabia of uh, 2003 when I wrote my book on the kingdom. Uh, back then, Saudi Arabia was funding roughly 70% of the Hamas budget, and um, Saudi Arabia was a significant player in Middle Eastern terror. What has happened since is that uh, Hamas is now illegal in Saudi Arabia. Uh, recently, the Saudis um, captured over 100 Hamas operatives on Saudi soil and uh, incarcerated them. So Saudi Arabia's policy towards Hamas is totally different. You have to remember back in um, 2003, uh, Israel was still at the tail end of the uh, Second Intifada, which was a terrible outburst of violence involving uh, suicide bombing attacks using buses, Israeli buses, um, in the heart of our cities. And therefore, any support for Hamas at that time was putting us into direct conflict uh, with Saudi Arabia. That has changed. And uh, I look forward to a time in the future where we'll be able to work together. I think the Saudi plan, uh, that is especially the plan of uh, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, is to uh, change the stress of the Saudi Arabian economy from oil to high tech with uh, the creation of a new high tech center 
in the uh, northwestern part of the kingdom near the Jordanian border. And uh, for what they would like to do for Saudi Arabia's future, Israel could be a very important partner. So let's hope we take this another step in the future and build a new Saudi-Israeli relationship. Now, the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs, which you've been director of for most of the last 20 years, established in 1978, a think tank which really concentrates minds on Iran, radical Islam, the Middle East, Israel, the peace process, the peace process now, Jerusalem, of course, worldwide anti-Semitism and world Jewry. So how are you getting on out of 10 in each of those components? Well, you know, you deal with what is also urgent and you hire people who will help you um, write breakthrough studies and uh, do appearances in the international media on those subjects. And uh, that's what we've been doing. Uh, I remember when um, there was a new Iranian government several years back and during the Obama administration, it was being touted for its moderation. But we have here a gentleman who used to uh, deal with Hezbollah quite directly. And he was a brigadier general in military intelligence. And uh, he had some comments to make on the moderation of the new Iranian defense minister at the time. And uh, I brought his comments to um, network news in the United States. And it was very important and very significant. There's a debate out there about Iran. And there are people who I might relate to as fools, but uh, they have a lot of power. And they were putting forward the thesis that uh, Iran was different. And in fact, the source of all instability in the Middle East was coming from Saudi Arabia, not from Iran. We had to put forward solid proof that that thesis was wrong, and we did. That really changes the conversation worldwide and concentrates minds, I think, on the Gulf states, on the rest of the Arab world, about these new alliances with the Jewish state. How much of a binding factor is the threat of Iran today? Well, I think Iran helps you focus your mind on what is going on. Remember, Iran has expansionist ambitions across the Middle East. And these keep coming out contrary to the expectations of many of the uh, so-called experts in the West. I remember when the uh, JCPOA, the Iran deal, the Iran nuclear deal, was concluded in 2015. Well, many of the various pundits were saying at the time that uh, if this Iran nuclear deal is, is concluded, Iran will become a much more moderate player across the, re the region. And what we found was the exact opposite. Because once you cut a deal with Iran, you have to remove sanctions on Iran. And with all this new spare cash available from its oil sales, for example, the Iranians could fund their various um, supporters in the Arab world, uh, extremist elements, 
like Hezbollah, like Hamas, like the Houthis, and create a much more dangerous Middle East. So rather than uh, the Iran deal in 2015 creating opportunities for um, uh, a more moderate region, it actually had the opposite effect. And I have to credit the think tank of the former British Prime Minister, Tony Blair, for pointing out this situation. And I used their studies to help uh, develop the positions we were putting forward. That is a phenomenal quote. Now, the Jerusalem Center is based in the building which used to house the Uruguayan embassy, which in 1980 decided to move from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv. We welcome another American nation in Guatemala and, of course, the big dogs of the United States to Jerusalem. But, sir, because you're a steadfast supporter of Jerusalem as the ultimate center of diplomacy for our country, (laughs) there is an irony in your building's history, isn't there? Well, it certainly is, but, uh, you know, everyone's coming back to Jerusalem, and uh, I hope that that doesn't change. You know, we have a um, potential point of tension with the Biden administration uh, at present because it would like to uh, open a Palestinian consulate in Jerusalem. problem is that The uh, previous understandings we have with the United States established Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And you can't put the consulate of another country into the capital of of the state of Israel. Uh, So this is currently a subject which is being discussed behind the scenes. There are a few newspapers in Israel that carry this story. But uh, I hope the more we reinforce uh, Jerusalem's position as the capital of Israel, uh, we'll be in a position to fend off initiatives of this sort. Indeed. On this subject, sir, perhaps one of the most significant diplomatic victories you were involved in was the removal of the PLO offices from East Jerusalem, as you claimed they violated the Oslo Accords. This was regarded as quite a retreat by Abu Mazen. Is he on his way out? And if so, who will replace him in the Palestinian Authority? Is Hamas emboldening itself within the Palestinian hearts and minds of the young population? Well, you know, Abu Mazen has been around for a long time. There has not been a Palestinian election in a very long time. He's not. He's an elected uh, leader of his uh, political movement. I don't know exactly what the future will bring for uh, Mahmoud Abbas, for Abu Mazen, but um, it's a very big question how long he stays in power and who possibly could replace him. Uh, Palestinian leadership today has a security network that uh, helps sustain uh, Mahmoud Abbas's uh, status and would ima- I would imagine would help sustain uh, his successors as well, and while the Hamas will try and knock on the door and take it over themselves. The obvious tension within the uh, Palestinian nation, for want of a better phrase, 
is clear and we have seen close to civil war military confrontations between the successors to the PLO and Hamas in the past. How likely is that if Hamas continue to embolden world opinion on their side and Abu Mazen looks continually a weaker figure amongst the Palestinian Authority? Uh, I can't say. These are very good questions and they are questions that no one has the evidence to answer. That was a shorter answer than I was hoping for, sir. <laughs> are you playing catch up with Johnny Gould's Jewish State? I've had the pleasure of some really great guests. How about Douglas Murray? Israel is a rare country in the West uh, in that it does buck many of the trends. I mean, there, isn't a, there isn't a fertility rate problem in Israel, um, for instance, as there is in most European countries, there is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in order to unite its people. And Hillel Neuer, whose UN Watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva. The challenges are great. They're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years, the known to some of the woke revolution, where there's a kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be cancelled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from a journalist, and often it's uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that, that, to be honest, really, really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy, to be honest, to be, to be truth-tellers. And so I am deeply concerned. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Johnny Gould or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould. There's something very serious about the rhetoric of Iran and Ahmadinejad, the former president of Iran, threatening to wipe Israel off the map. Of course, Menachem Begin and others within the Jewish and Israeli world have said, well, if they quack like a duck, uh, they are a duck. We have to believe them when they say these evil things. Dory, how can we stop? Iran from wiping Israel off the map. I know you've been at the forefront of trying to stop these genocidal comments by Iranian leadership over many, many years. The first thing we have to do is have genocidal rhetoric. Most people don't know what I'm about to say, but back in 1949, when the international community adopted the Genocide Convention, it contained a clause, I haven't looked at it in many years, but I believe it's uh, clause number four. It called uh, incitement to genocide a, um, a crime against humanity. It called it a you know, almost like a war crime. And therefore, it would be fitting that when the Iranian leadership calls for Israel to be destroyed, 
or wiped off the map in the language of Ahmadinejad, we use international law to indict these guys. Uh, we tried to move an initiative in that direction uh, back in, um, when was that, 2005, 2004, um, but we did not succeed. We had very good people who believed that this had to be done. Elie Wiesel signed a uh, study we put out on, on uh, Iranian genocidal language uh, and others as well. Uh, but I think we're going to have to renew that. We have a new Iranian president, Mr. Raisi, who, who will, I'm sure, not at all be reluctant to uh, resort to that language again. The use of genocidal language oftentimes leads to the adoption of genocidal policies. This is why Iran's quest for nuclear weapons is so serious and why we have to do everything possible to neutralize that effort. Dore, congratulations on winning the Bonetzion Prize, annually awarded by Nefesh Benefesh. To formally recognize your achievements for outstanding Anglo-immigrants and their contribution to the State of Israel, as a fellow Anglo speaker who set this podcast up because English crosses so many borders and cultures, perhaps like no other language, how important is English as a native tongue as a tool to cross borders to explain the Jewish state and Israel to the world? Well, let's start with our Arab neighbors. I, when I was starting out in diplomacy, I thought I was going to have to uh, develop my Arabic-speaking skills uh, in order to reach out to uh, neighboring countries. But lo and behold, I found that uh, among the Gulf states, in Jordan, for example, the uh, top leadership spoke better English than I did. <laughs> and, you know, they had been educated in British public school. And, and um, you know, English was a pivotal instrument for uh, political communication. So um, you know, that continues to be the case. And um, uh, it's very helpful if your English is fairly strong. We need to be able to reach out to elite publics in the English-speaking world to make the case for the state of Israel. I feel the same way. Johnny Gould's Jewish state has been around for nearly three years now. And I'm proud to say we broadcast to 80 countries around the world uh, with an audience fast developing and thickening. And it is due to the strength of guests, including you today, sir, that I'm enabled to do that. I read something quite amusing, anecdotal, that the current Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett, and the former Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, of course, uh, Native American English speakers even discussed uh, Israeli state issues in English. So is that true? I don't know, but I do know this. When I started out working with the Israeli government, the foreign minister of Israel was Moshe Arendt, 
And when I would walk into his office in the foreign ministry, he was the foreign minister. We would just fall into speaking English. So English was commonly used by top Israeli officials. I also had a relationship with Abba Iban, and uh, I remember meeting him in the Regency Hotel in New York when I served as Israel's ambassador to the UN. And, you know, we would both sort of awkwardly begin in Hebrew, and his Hebrew was amazing, but we would quickly uh, turn to English, and English would be the language of our communication. So um, English is very much used by, uh, let's say, uh, top Israeli diplomats. And, um, you know, I, that's not a bad thing. Abba Eban and his incredible gifts in English language uh, poetry in his speeches. I think I would love to explain it like that, to describe it as that. Um, well, formulate a great history of narrative within, uh, within Israeli and indeed Jewish politics in the 20th century. In the grammar of classical Hebrew, there is none of the sharp differentiation possessed by modern languages between that which is and that which shall be. It is the story of a small country on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean in which a people of shepherds and farmers thousands of years ago proclaimed a message whose echoes are still the hope, the consolation, and the redemption of mankind. Against the prevailing mood of fatalism and resignation, the Hebrew mind set up the doctrine of a moral choice in the relations of man with his own conscience. Among peoples and societies of the ancient East, crushed by misery and exploitation, this message called for love and justice in the dealings of men with their neighbors, to a world in which war and massacre seemed part of man's essential nature, the literature of Israel in words of deathless beauty brought the revolutionary message of universal peace. These three principles of individual morality, social justice, and universal peace are the primary gifts of the Hebrew people and of the land of Israel to all peoples and all lands in all successive generations. Thus this small people and this little land were endowed in their influence on the course of history with dimensions far beyond the narrow limits of their space and size. The land of Israel is today again the abode of a free society, established by the very nation which gave those hills and valleys their ancient fame. The Hebrew language in which the voice of conscience and freedom once spoke with matchless dignity and power is again the daily speech of men from Dan to Beersheba, from the River Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea. To a citizen of Israel, these monuments and records are the credentials of nationhood. For modern Israel is no new Esperanto people born in a modern accident of history. Our new republic is in its own consciousness and in that of mankind, the direct heir of Israel of old, the author of the Judeo-Christian civilization. Our national sentiment is enriched by this sense of derivation from ancient roots. The sentiment of historic continuity, the awareness of a noble past, are ever present in our hearts as the inspiration of our national effort. 
it is no small thing to tread the paths once followed by Hebrew kings and prophets, to tend the soil and pastures of David and Amos, to look out across the valley where Ezekiel saw the mysterious vision of revival. And if you want to influence how people are thinking, if you want to influence people to adopt your narrative, as we use that term today, uh, mastering English is an absolute uh, prerequisite. And um, it was my fortune in my political career to have been exposed to individuals like Iban, like Netanyahu, who were simply outstanding in their use of the English language. It's an unusual time in the sense that the Prime Minister of Israel isn't Benjamin Netanyahu. Sir, you are close to him. Can he make a third comeback? Is he going to be back as Prime Minister one day? Does he have a will to continue? You know, I'll tell you one thing about Benjamin Netanyahu. I remember going to his home in Balfour, the Prime Minister's residence, for consultations. And uh, the consultations would begin at around midnight, and we'd get to about three or four in the morning, and all of the young advisors were passing out on his couch. And Netanyahu was just, he just kept going. And he had, it seemed like uh, endless strength to uh, do what had to be done to complete discussions on critical affairs of state. I tell that story because he's an individual who is completely committed to protecting the state of Israel. And, uh, you know, if it's necessary for him to make a comeback, I think he will. If it's not, then I don't think he's just going to do it for the sake of power. But I think it's too early to say which way it's going to go. I remember him saying that he regarded the state of Israel as the future cradle of the Jewish people. And I interpreted that not just as eventually being, you know, the greatest population center of the Jewish people, but also, culturally speaking, the cradle to maintain our traditions, both religious and spiritual, both religious and national. Dore, do you agree with that, uh, that uh, the idea that it is inevitable that uh, the declining diaspora numbers will one day lead to Israel becoming the foremost driver of Jewish culture? Well, there's some evidence of that already happening, but nobody in Israel who's serious looks forward to the decline of the diaspora. We don't sit around going, you know, well, we're Eretz Israel, and uh, everybody else is uh, Babylonia and let them decline. We don't feel that. Let's hope that a new era of revival of um, Jewish life that we'll see definitely in Israel, we will also see in the diaspora. And I think now, because of the nature of, of electronic communications, uh, the internet, it is much more feasible for breakthroughs in uh, culture and uh, intellectual knowledge that occur in Israel being shared with the diaspora in a matter of minutes.
Sorry, just one more question, an unscheduled one here on that subject, which is, of course, the growing schism between the Zionists of the United States, the people who identify with Israel, and the growing uh, secular numbers of people who choose Tikkun Olam as their single identity with being Jewish, and therefore discount Israel. This is your former home. This is, to a large extent, still your identity as an American Israeli. Dore, what would you say to the audience of the United States, which is my second biggest audience in the world, about Israel? Well, I believe the state of Israel is committed to the concept of tikkun olam. And I believe we get a very bad rap in the um, international media. You know, when I was director general of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, I made a repeated effort to warm up relations with the government of South Africa. And I took a, uh, an Israeli delegation uh, to Pretoria and uh, to other places in South Africa. And uh, I recall we sat down with the uh, South African diplomats and we signed uh, agreements, new agreements between Israel and South Africa. This was in uh, 2016, I believe. But I also, because I'm aware of the importance of PR, I told the foreign ministry's office that deals with getting our message out to put out the photographs of us sitting and signing agreements in South Africa with a sentence underneath. And that sentence was, while uh, in places like Berkeley, California, and Amherst, Massachusetts, Israel is condemned in demonstrations. Here in South Africa, Israel and South Africa are signing new agreements on cooperation. I think that uh, we can exemplify what uh, the high standards of tikkun olam call for in our um, diplomatic behavior. That's exactly what we should be doing. When we hear of genocide occurring in the world, we should stand in the front line opposing it, in fact, fighting it. And that's what being a Jewish state is all about. That's what I felt when I was in the, that's what I feel when I'm now in a research institute. And I think that'll be how I will act, regardless of where I end up landing in the years ahead. Sir, that was a, a wonderful answer, and thank you. I do have one more which springs out of my head. You're such an interesting person with such a unique diplomatic relationship. And I've uh, got this one to put to you. Uh, sir, I interviewed Mudar Zahran, who puts himself about as the unofficial opposition of Jordan and who would be best described as the Abraham Accords. I, right now. Pardon? I was an envoy to King Hussein and the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. And I do not want to get involved in initiatives that undermine the Israeli-Jordanian relationship. So um, he may have some ideas. I'm familiar with his thinking, but that is not where I am personally going, and that is not where I would recommend the state of Israel go. 
can I ask, though, taking the names of people out of the equation, that signing deals with dictators who may not have the same or similar or even comparative ideologies with the state of Israel and who maintain an anti-Israel feeling despite signing accords actually perhaps stops progress with parties that perhaps would produce a more lasting and ideological peace with Israel. Do you understand the point I'm making, sir, that in reaching for peace with whoever the dominant partner is, whoever the ruling partner is, sometimes uh, it might be better to reach out to people who ideologically might be more supportive of the state of Israel. Well, what you're saying is uh, theoretically true, but we live in a world where there are countries around us, immediately around us, or countries that are further away that, um, you know, have different values than we have. And diplomacy is all about managing those differences. You know, what would we do if tomorrow the president of Turkey all of a sudden said he wants a new relationship with Israel? And would you feel good about that? Uh, It's challenging. It's very challenging. And that's what being a diplomat means. I really do appreciate your time today and fitting it into your busy diary. And I want to thank also John T. Feldman, my friend who I believe initiated this interview and got you to say yes. So thank you very much indeed, sir. He's a very good guy. I'm really pleased to hear it. Dore, thank you very much. You're excellent. I'm going to say it properly now. Your Excellency Ambassador Dore Gold, thank you very much for joining me on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. My pleasure. Great. All right. We'll talk another time. You bet. Thank you. Take care. Never miss another Johnny Gould's Jewish State. And be first to hear the next show by subscribing now. Follow Johnny Gould on Twitter and Johnny Gould Show on Facebook. And if you liked what you heard today, leave a rating or review. That really helps bring more listeners to the show.